Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. We have a, another article going up there um, this weekend, so check it out, theparticularbaptist.net. And if you're watching in our YouTube channel um, and you have not yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and then hit the bell to be notified when any new videos come out. Um, and with that, we're going to talk about um, an Orthodox Catechism. We're continuing on in our book here, Chapter 7. Um, the second part of man's redemption, baptism. Baptism, always a, a touchy issue. Um, you know, we're going to talk about some covenant theology. We're going to talk about the sign itself and the regulative principle of worship. And we're going to uh, dive into this quite a bit, um, as Collins does. Um, so with that, we're going to go ahead and start. We start with question 68, um, as Collins has written in his book. He, In each chapter, he he's, has the book broken up, or the catechism, rather, broken up into chapters, but he continues the questions sequentially. So question 68 is where we'll start, and we're talking about baptism. So Sean is going to uh, start the discussion tonight. All right, so question 68, what is baptism? Answer, immersion or dipping of the person in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by such who are duly qualified by Christ. And, um, Baptism is an important subject uh, for Baptists. Um, that's where we get our name. Um, the fact that we hold a, a distinctive view from the rest of Protestantism on baptism, specifically that uh, only believers, or at least professed believers, should be uh, baptized. Um, and just a couple of verses going over um, what baptism is. This uh, The Catechism aptly sums it up here, but um, Matthew 3.16 this is describing the uh, baptism of Jesus. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. So here we see that Jesus was in the water, and then he came up out of it. This uh, giving credence to the idea that uh, baptism, the Greek word baptizo, means to dip or immerse. And then Matthew 28, uh, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the church is supposed to go make disciples and baptize them. Um, this is uh, part of the mission of the church. And then finally for this question, I just wanted to read from uh, our Confession of Faith, which is always a safe place to, uh, to read from. Uh, chapter 29 of Baptism, paragraph 1. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So did you have any uh, comments on that first question there, Dan? Um, just that baptism in terms of its right administration is immersion. And we, we do get that from, you know, you mentioned that passing, but we do get that from uh, really the Greek word that baptismo, I think it's how you pronounce it um, or baptizo, uh, which means to immerse or dip. So that, um, that I think is important to point out 
you know, we would disagree with our Presbyterian and our Lutheran brethren, um, and I think our Anglican brethren as well, uh, in terms of the method. Um, and I think they would have a combination of both immersion and, you know, if you're applying to infants, it would be more of a sprinkling or a pouring. But we see the proper method as being immersion in every uh, sense of the term. Well, that's all I'd say in passing. All right. Well, with that, then we'll move on to question 69. Who are the proper subjects of this ordinance? Answer, those who do actually profess repentance towards God and faith in and in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so uh, there's two proof texts for this, uh, this in the catechism. So I'll read those. The first one is Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy, Go of the Holy Spirit. So here we have repentance connected with baptism. Um, so this would imply that uh, those who are receiving baptism are to be disciples, those that have repented. And then we have Acts 8, 36 through 37. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So here we see an explicit declaration in order to be baptized, you must believe. Um, and so that's important for our understanding of who uh, baptism is to be administered to. Um, and just ultimately, when you're, you're, you're thinking about baptism, it is very interesting to note that um, for those that would hold to a pedo-baptistic view, there's no explicit declaration of um infants anywhere getting baptized, only those who profess faith. There are a couple ambiguous uh, passages when you get to household baptism, but it, uh, it doesn't go one way or the other. It doesn't say explicitly that infants or children were baptized. It just says that a household was baptized. And in one case, it actually lets us know that all that were in the household were believers. So uh, it's reasonable to conclude the other household baptisms might have or were uh, as well. So just from a... Um, a perspective of just looking at the examples of scripture, we have no example of anybody but believer, uh, professed believers being baptized. Yeah, and that that's a great point, Sean, and I think that's goes to the heart of, um, or at least one of the hearts of the issue here is um, if we don't see an express example or command, rather command, I should say, um, then really should we be practicing these things? And I think that gets into our next set of questions here in question 70, 71. Uh, question 70, are infants to be baptized? Answer, none by no means, for we have neither precept nor example for that practice in all the book of God. And then question 71, do the scriptures anywhere expressly forbid the baptism of infants? Answer, it is sufficient that the divine oracle commands the baptizing of believers, unless we will make ourselves wiser than what is written. Nadab and Abihu were not forbidden to offer strange fire, yet for doing so, yet for so doing, they incurred God's wrath because they were commanded to take fire from the altar. And that's from Leviticus 10. So Collins kind of comes at it from two different angles here. So he says, no, we can't because it doesn't. Uh, there's no precept nor example, 
And then he kind of anticipates, I think, a response. Right? Well, it, it doesn't say you can't do it. So why couldn't we do it? And he really goes to what we would call the regulative principle of worship, right? And he says, look, the scriptures give us the means or the commands, the requirements, the imperatives, the precepts for how we're to worship God. And if we go outside of that, then we are essentially adding to the word of God or adding or saying that we are wiser uh, than what God has commanded. Um, so I, I think this is a very, actually, I think this is a very good argument against infant baptism um, because we would, I think us uh, are, we obviously would agree that everything in worship, I think between our Presbyterian and uh, and Reformed Baptist brother, we would agree with the regular principle of worship that we should only worship how God has commanded us to do so. Um, and I think we would all agree that baptism is a form of worship. It's not something you do outside of corporate gathering, outside of corporate worship. It's an element of worship. I think we would all agree with that. And if it is, then it has to be regulated by God's word. It cannot be... Um, we cannot introduce things into that sacrament or into God's worship that are not commanded in Scripture. And we don't see this commanded in Scripture. Um, and like Sean said, there are possible vague texts that might allude to that. Obviously, we would say they don't, but taken on its face, maybe it could go either way uh, with household baptisms. Um, but like Sean said, there's at least one instance. I think it was with the, the Philippian jailer where the... Was, yeah. the okay where the uh, people who were baptized in the household were believers, right? It, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't just done because the father or the jailer believed. They actually believed as well, and that's important to remember. Um, so we must worship God as he has prescribed. If he has not prescribed infant baptism, then we shouldn't be participating in it. Um, and then there's the covenant argument, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. I know I was listening in preparation for this. I was listening to that great debate between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. Um, and I listened to um, a portion of Sproul's discussion. And he tried to argue that there is express uh, precept or express command for infant baptism found in the Abrahamic through the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and I think there are some covenantal problems with that, which we might get into second. But uh, the point is that we're all concerned with how we obey God and worship. Um, it, it's a matter of how we arrive at those conclusions that I think really um, is differentiating how the regulative principle is applied. But we would see it as there is no command in Scripture for it. Baptism is an element of corporate worship, that, and since it's not there, it's not commanded, we should not uh, introduce that into worship, and therefore it should not be practiced. Um, but we do see that you know baptism does represent what is happening in the heart, right? It is representing and symbolizing a physical circumcision, right? Circumcision was first introduced in, in Genesis 12, uh, Genesis 17 with Abraham. Um, but this covenant that uh, is here now under the new covenant was distinct from Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. There were distinct elements of it. There. Uh, the covenant didn't come into effect until the death of Christ, Hebrews 9, 16 through 22. And it's described as being substantially different. It's a, a covenant that comes later after the Mosaic covenant. It's 
not something that existed back uh, before that. There is this substantial difference in this covenant. And we see this, I think, very clearly in Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. Um, so the regulative principle and the covenant aspect come together to, to kind of help um, bring this together. And this argument that Collins is using really is not unprecedented. Uh, we see this um, even before the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith um, was given. Um, in this book here, From Shadow to Substance um, by Sam Renahan, it's his doctoral dissertation, he talks about um, Benjamin Cox, who is the father of Nehemiah Cox, who would go on to probably co-author the 1689 and sign the confession. So Benjamin Cox, Nollies, and William Kiffin. They basically argued on the same grounds, and he talks about this in here, that religious worship has to be um, regulated by the Word of God. It can't be, uh, it, we can't just use um, good and necessary consequence in this respect um, because we're talking about religious worship. We're not talking about anything else, and religious worship has to be regulated by um, express commands of Scripture. And so we have to be very careful um, about these things. But I think this is where uh, Collins is taking this line of thought. And Collins wrote later than these men, obviously. Um, this came out later in the 17th century. Um, but I think he's following in that same line of thought. Worship is regulated by God. Bat infant baptism is not commanded in Scripture, so therefore should not be um, prescribed. Anything you want to add to that, Sean? Yeah, Um our, our Presbyterian brethren will often argue that, um, well, you Baptists are forgetting that um, it's not necessarily everything is expressly laid down in Scripture. It might be there by good necessary consequence, to which, of course, we would we would very much agree. But doesn't it strike you as a little odd that something so important or central is not expressly laid down? Um, but it is, you have to argue from implication and from my perspective, not very clear implication at all. Um, it see, it strikes me just on the face of it as, as being very odd. Do we have anything else like that in worship where there's something very central that's not even commented on whatsoever? Um, it, 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 it should, I, I would hope it would give our Presbyterian brethren at least some pause perhaps. Yeah, it seems it, it's kind of odd that it's this one aspect that seems to be um, what we would call the normative principle of worship, right? And I think, um, you know, it, basically, if the scripture doesn't command it, it's okay. Um, now, again, like what I mentioned with Sproul, he tries to be he tried to be consistent with the regulative principle by saying it was expressly commanded in the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but I would come right back and say it's not commanding baptism, it's commanding circumcision. And, you know, and, and then you have to talk about the, you know, either assume that the covenant is the same or you have to show that it's different, which would affect the sign of said covenant and its relationship to the new covenant. So, you know, there there's all kinds of other issues you get into. Um, uh, but, yeah. All right, so in that case, moving on to question um, 72. May the infant seed of believers under the gospel be baptized just as the infant seed of Abraham under the law was circumcised? Answer, no. Abraham, ha Abraham had a command then from God to circumcise his infant seed, but believers have no command to baptize their infant seed under the gospel. And then 
it lists uh, Genesis. Uh, well, this is Genesis 17. Uh, and I have Genesis 19 here. Okay, well, I'll, I'll read Genesis 19, 9 through 12. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born of your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. So here we have an explicit command to Abraham to circumcise. Um, there is an implied um, continuation of this necessarily unless we see it elsewhere in scripture. Um, and I'd like to note at this point that this is uh, a command uh, to circumcise all of Abraham's descendants. If we were to pattern ourselves after the old covenant, we would therefore expect to be baptizing all of Abraham's descendants. And yet that's, that's clearly what, not what we do. Um, we don't baptize any Jew that we see, assuming they would be willing to undergo such a thing. Um, we baptize those who profess faith and then our, our paedo-baptist brothers uh, baptize their children. But that's not the pattern that we actually see in the Abrahamic covenant. It's uh, all, all of Abraham's descendants, regardless of their spiritual status, and um, those in his household, even if they're not necessarily related to that, related to him. Yeah, and, you know, talking about Abraham's descendants, we even see um, that those who believe by faith are Abraham's descendants, Romans 4, right? Spiritual seed and uh, in, in spiritual descendants through faith and faith alone as distinct from Abraham's physical descendants. So there's, there is that two part aspect to the Abrahamic covenant, right? There's a spiritual aspect, which um, the descendants would be through faith, which was prophesied. Your descendants will be like the sand of the seashore. They will be numerous, etc. And then there's the immediate promises in the land of Canaan and uh, promises to the physical seed of Abraham. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point to bring up. Um, so question 73. Now, this is a very long answer because it, it goes into covenant theology. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the question and I'll take it by paragraph and then talk about each paragraph as I go through it um, and try to break it down. So question 73. Uh, since some say that the infants of believers are in the covenant of grace with their parents, why may they not be baptized under the gospel just as Abraham's infant seed was circumcised under the law? Answer, by asserting that the infants of believers are in the covenant of grace, they must either mean of the covenant of grace absolutely considered, and if so, then there is no total and final apostasy of any infant seed of believers from the covenant, but all must be saved then. I think what Collins is getting at here is that if you're part of the new covenant, you will be saved. There's no um, mixed membership as we saw with Reform Forum, right? Those OBC brethren, good brothers, but they held that you there is an actual mixed membership in the new covenant. Collins is saying, no, you're either saved, absolutely, and there's no portion or, or um, there's no chance of you falling away because you're in the new covenant, the new covenant saves. I think that's what he's getting at here. Uh, next paragraph. Or they must mean conditionally that when they come to years of maturity, 
they by true faith, love, and holiness of life, taking hold of God's covenant of grace, shall have the privileges of it. If this is their meaning, then what spiritual privilege does the infant seed of believers have more than the infant seed of unbelievers? If they live also to years of maturity and by true faith and love take hold of God's covenant. Furthermore, would not the zeal of the covenant belong as much to the children of unbelievers as to the children of believers? Yes, since the infant seed of the unbeliever sometimes comes to embrace God's covenant and the infant seed of the believer does not, as often this is seen to the sorrow of many godly parents. And I, I think here he's just trying to point out the problems of saying that it's a mixed covenant, that you can have people who are unbelievers truly be part of the covenant of grace. Uh, next paragraph here. Suppose all the infant seed of believers are absolutely in the covenant of grace, yet believers under the gospel ought no more to baptize their infant seed than Lot to circumcise himself or his infant seed if he had males as well as females, although he was related to Abraham, a believer, and in the covenant of grace, since circumcision was limited to Abraham and his immediate family. If the infant seed of the believers are absolutely in the covenant of grace, we may bring infants to the Lord's table because the same qualifications are required to the due performance of baptism as for the Lord's Supper. Now, this is very interesting because uh, typically you do not find in Presbyterian circles uh, them bringing infants to the Lord's table. Now, I do. Th I think Doug Wilson practices this, and I could be wrong, um, but at least if he is, he's being consistent. Well, if we're baptizing, you know, babies and they're under the new covenant, why in the world can I get, give them the Lord's table? And Collins is pointing out here that the requirements for both those ordinances are the same. They're for believers. So why are you barring one from an infant who is supposedly a member of the covenant of grace, which is supposed to be salvific in the first place, right? And then he goes on. Uh, the covenant made with Abraham had two parts, and we've talked a little bit about this already. He had two parts. First, a spiritual component, which consisted in God's promising to be a God to Abraham and all his spiritual seed in a peculiar manner, whether they were circumcised or uncircumcised, who believed as Abraham the father of the faithful did. And, did, and this was signified in God's accepting such as his people, which were not of Abraham's seed, but bought with his money, and this promise was sealed to Abraham by circumcision, that through Jesus Christ, whom Isaac typified, the Gentiles, the uncircumcision which believed should have their faith counted for righteousness as Abraham's was before he was circumcised. And they, uh, the last reference here is Romans 4, 9 through 14. So this is referring to that place where Paul talks about those who believe their father is Abraham in a spiritual sense, right? Now, if you're a Jew, it, your father, it, uh, he would be their father physically because of circumcision and their, fa their father spiritually because of faith. But Abraham was the father of faith of all those who would believe. And so Sean and I here, even though we're not physically Jews or physically of Abraham, we are sons of Abraham, spiritually speaking, because this covenant was pointing forward um, at least in part, to a spiritual reality, and circumcision was the, the sign or the seal of that promise. So going on here, second, this promise consisted of a temporal component. Thus, God promised Abraham's seed should enjoy the land of Canaan and have plenty of outward blessings. 
So he sealed this promise by circumcision. Circumcision also distinguished the Jews as being God's people from all nations of the all the nations of the Gentiles, which as yet were not the seed of Abraham. But when the Gentiles came to believe and by faith became the people of God as well as the Jews, then circumcision, that distinguishing mark, ceased. The distinguishing mark of being the children of God was uh, now is faith in Christ and circumcision of the heart. Therefore, whatever pretense there may be to baptize the infants of believers avails nothing, whether they're being the seed of believers, their being in the covenant, or that the infant seed of Abraham, a believer, was circumcised. Circumcision was limited also to the family of Abraham, all others, though believers, being excluded. Circumcision was limited also to the eighth day, and whatever pretense might be made, it was not to be done before or after. It was limited to males, which a baptism came in the room of circumcision and is the seal of the covenant under the gospel. As circumcision was under the law, none but males must be baptized. Just as under the law circumcision had peculiar regulations, so it is under the gospel concerning baptism. These regulations concerning baptism depend purely upon the will of the lawgiver, that prophet to whom we would do well to listen. He determines upon whom, when, and how baptism is to be administered. So a very long section and a long answer, but um, one that needs discussion. Covenant theology is not a small issue. It's a very complex issue. Um, but you can see how the particular Baptists uh, really started, they were really trying to work out these elements of uh, their covenant theology. In this last section here, um, Collins is talking about the secondary aspect. Uh, remember, the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant had two aspects to it. It had a spiritual component, as Collins says, and it was a promise that had a temporal component. There were real promises for the land that the people of Israel would receive through the Abrahamic covenant. And we see this in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. Um, I'm just going to read uh, Genesis 12, 6 through 7 here. It says, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the uh, terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to them. Who appeared to him. And then in Genesis 17, we see him reiterating this promise that the, the land would be given to Abraham. And then the sign of that, this seal, would be through circumcision. In verse 11 of uh, Genesis 17, it says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So it had a spiritual component and a temporal component. And basically what Collins is saying here is that if you want to try and take the temporal component, you can't pick and choose what you want. You either It's either all or nothing. If you're going to, he says, bring baptism into the room of circumcision. If you're going to put them into the same category, then you have to treat baptism of infants in the same way that you treat circumcision. Um, and if, if you're simply going to say, well, okay, it's typological, all those other elements— um, then you're starting to say that this covenant uh, is somehow not really the same as the others. Now, they'll probably get around that by saying that it's an administration, but you're still left with the problem of picking and choosing what you want from the covenant. Um, why circumcision and why only certain aspects of circumcision and not others? Why, is it, why do you not baptize your infants on the eighth day? 
like circumcision required. And that's what Collins pointed out. It was not to be done before or after. It was on the eighth day. That was a specific command. Um, and he's reiterating that these that the word of God regulates how these things are to be done. And I think that the key quote from this is he says, just as under the law, circumcision had peculiar regulations, so it is under the gospel concerning baptism. Those regulations, those precepts that govern um, the the outward sign or the the practices in the new covenant or, or in the old covenant or the Abrahamic covenant, um, that same principle applies in the new covenant. Those stipulations under the new covenant now govern what uh, we are to do under the new covenant. And that assumes a distinct substance difference between the two, which we would hold to. And I think can be demonstrated very clearly from uh, especially the book of Hebrews. Um but yeah, so that was a very long section from Collins, but a very important one talking about the issues that you get into from a covenantal perspective if you um, try to use circumcision as uh, an argument for infant baptism. You want to add anything to that, Sean? Yeah. Um, in my discussions with uh, Reformed Paedo-Baptists, um, it does very much seem that they just have this hurdle and getting over that there's a distinction between how God handled um, his covenants in the old, co in the old Testament and how he's handling uh, the new covenant. Uh, they look at the old covenant or the old Testament era, really. It's like, well, God dealt with families, dealt with physical children in the, in this time period. Why are you saying that now there's this, this radical change in the new covenant era? And I think, Dan's laid out uh, the case uh, that there is, but I want to go over one spot where we see the fact that it's laying out the fact uh, that there's this distinction here. Um, this is coming from Galatians chapter four, and I will start at verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. He who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. The one is Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Hagar. And this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in the bondage, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry that thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he was that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So key to uh, Paul's argument here is the fact that there's a distinction between children of the flesh and children of the promise. Now, in the Abrahamic covenant, they're all children of the flesh, right? But here he's making a distinction, contrasting the Mount Sinai and now with the new covenant, here we're dealing with children of the promise and not all, as we know, um, children of believers are not necessarily part of that promise because we see them go astray and they, they obviously were never in the new covenant. Um, 
but there's this contrast here, children of the flesh, children of the promise. So we can say that in this New Testament era, God is not dealing with children of the flesh. He's dealing with children of the promise. Oh, I think you might be muted, Dan, or I can't hear you if you aren't. I was. Thank you, Sean. Completely <laughs> <laughs> space out there. Um, but yeah, and that I think is reiterated expressly in, in Romans 4 as we've mm -hmm. um, discussed. There is that distinction between the land and those things were fulfilled on the land and even um, continued on in the Mosaic Covenant, right? Circumcision didn't go away uh, in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, it was still required. Um, and there were certain aspects. Of, it was just a continuation, really, of the Abrahamic covenant and even into jesus's time jesus was born under the law right he was cir circumcised on the eighth day um keeping the law perfectly and still submitting to that covenant um that was made with abraham but a lot of these are or really these arguments in terms of infant baptism um continuing uh, or kind of being a continuation if you will or some kind of direct parallel to circumcision and therefore is required really assumes that these covenants are substantially the same um you have to assume that the abrahamic covenant is just substantially the new covenant just in a different form and we would obviously disagree with that um, and i think hebrews 8 is one of the best places to talk about that um and we've touched a little bit about this already but i want to read just a little bit here i think this is very important as we're um, discussing these things um, Hebrews 8, um, starting in uh, verse 6. Uh, but, as it is, uh, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31. And then in verse 13, uh, he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready uh, to vanish away. Now, he's, he's contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant, right? But he's saying that this new covenant is a second covenant, the first covenant being really the old covenant, but the second covenant that's coming along, right? This is one that cannot come before the Mosaic Covenant, or that would be the first covenant, right? No, this is a covenant that comes after the Mosaic Covenant. Um, so that implies that it's not the same as the Abrahamic Covenant. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. He wasn't the mediator of the Abrahamic Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant, or the Noahic Covenant, or the Adamic Covenant. He was the mediator of this new covenant, which is obviously coming after the Mosaic Covenant. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, we see that the uh, a covenant or a testament is uh, not ratified until there is a death. That is expressly laid out in Hebrews chapter 9 and tied directly to the new covenant. So this would require Christ to have come. This would require Christ to have been incarnated and as a man die on a cross and shed his blood, which ratified and brought into effect this new covenant. So that means that this covenant could not have existed, but in promise before um, he came and died. So those are very important elements to understand. When we're talking about the substantial difference between the covenants. And if you can, 
demonstrate, which I we clearly see the scriptures teaching here, that these covenants are substantially different, then infant baptism uh, really is moot at that point, because then you must be regulated to what that covenant stipulates. That covenant is only for believers, um, and if there are only believers in that covenant, then only believers can be baptized. Um, and then not to mention the regulative principle implications that we've already discussed. Um, so that's how we have to look at, at these covenants. Um, and the Abrahamic covenant is no different, although there are certainly parallels. And I think there are parallels just because one is a, a typological uh, picture of the one that was to come. You know, the Abrahamic covenant certainly had typo typological pictures in it that pointed forward to the realities in the heart. Circumcision pointed forward, circumcision of the flesh pointed forward to circumcision in the heart, which would be that giving of a new heart and God writing his law on our hearts so that we could um, truly be his. Now, those are those are important elements that we, uh, we have to look at when we talk about uh, infant baptism and covenant theology. Um, infant baptism kind of, it's like pulling a thread you know, it, it kind of unravels or pulling a thread on a sweater it unravels the whole thing um, from something that might be seemingly so small. Um, but yeah. Question 74. Um, now, it, it Collins kind of takes a, a turn. He, so he, he lays out why infant baptism. He spends a lot of time talking about that. And then he turns into... In question 74, he says, How are you admonished and assured in baptism that you are a partaker of the only sacrifice of Christ? So now he's talking about what baptism actually is. Answer, because Christ commanded the outward washing of water, joining this promise to it, that I am no less assuredly washed by his blood and spirit from all uncleanness of my soul, that is, from all my sins, than I am washed outwardly from the filthiness of the body uh, with water. So this is really a secure promise, right? It's commanded, it's laid out. We see this in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Again, another place where it expressly says that disciples are to be baptized or, or expressly saying how baptism is to be used. But it really brings peace and assurance to us, right? Baptism isn't itself uh, cleansing us. We, we know that. Baptism is merely uh, a sign, not an empty sign. It does convey things, does convey grace in a sense, but it does bring peace to our hearts. It, it's a sign of that union with Christ, right? It's a sign of our identifying ourselves with him and of the spiritual reality that we have in him. So it, it can preach, it can tell those around us and be a great witness to those around us, which it is declaring something, but it also... Uh, brings, I think, great comfort, uh, or it can bring great comfort to the believer in what it symbolizes. Um, so I think that's what uh, Collins is getting at here. All right. In that case, let's go on to question 75. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? Answer, it is to receive of God forgiveness of sins freely for the blood of Christ, which he has shed for us in his sacrifice upon the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and through his sanctifying of us to become members of Christ, that we may more and more die to sin and live holy and without blame. So just a couple of uh, proof texts for this. Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 5. 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So it is the blood of Christ that washes and cleanses us from our sin. First John uh, 1 John 1.7 carries a, uh, a similar idea. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John 3, uh, verse 5. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here we have water and the spirit being tied together with the new birth. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the uh, physical baptism, but that it's pointing to a spiritual reality of uh the being washed with the spirit that the spirit is doing the washing of us. And then finally, finally Titus three verses four and five. But when the kindness and the love of God, our savior appeared toward uh, of our savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy spirit. So here we're, we're being told that it's not by our works that we've been saved, but the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit is the one that is, um, that, that's the means by which we have uh, been saved. Yeah, amen, amen. And I'm actually going to talk about those two passages in, in John 3 and in Titus 3. And the next, uh, the next question, question 76, ties into this. Uh, where does Christ promise us that he will, uh, he will as certainly wash us with his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? Answer, in the institution of baptism, the words of which are these, Go, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He that shall believe and be baptized shall be saved, but he that will not believe shall be damned. This promise is repeated again when the scripture calls baptism the washing of the new birth and forgiveness of sins. So again, baptism is symbolizing a spiritual reality. Um, and, and Titus 3.5 is a proof text here in the section uh, talking about uh, Scripture calls baptism the washing of the new birth. And it, Titus 3.5 is that verse. And this is, you know, it said, Not according to mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Um, now this passage, and, and along with that passage in John 3, uh, John 3.5, are used um, by our Lutheran friends to talk about some kind of baptismal regeneration, right? Or somehow salvation by baptism. Um, and we would disagree with that. I would take Sean's view that it's talking about a, the spirit washing us. Right. And I think that's consistent with what we see in John and what we see in the old Testament. Um, and I relied quite a bit on the uh, reformation study Bible for this. Um, but there are passages in the Old Testament that refer to this to the Spirit being poured out similar to water, right? Isaiah 32, 15 says, Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. So the Spirit is being poured out like a liquid, right? Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And the spirit is being compared to water, right? It's being poured out like water on the on their offspring. 
And finally, Ezekiel uh, 36, 25-27 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And this is really talking about the um, the, the purification that we receive uh, from the Spirit. In the Reformation Study Bible, talking about this, it says, quote, The sprinkling or pouring of water refers to the ritual purifications for removing religious defilement. It is also used as a symbol for the gift of God's Spirit in the anointing of kings and priests and in the prophetic call. The outpouring of God's Spirit is a sign of the Messianic age. This rich symbolism attaches to baptism in the New Testament. So there's certain so baptism essentially is representing what's it representing? It's representing the spiritual reality that has happened within us. And so it's tied very closely with water. Um, but another thing to point out too, in John 3 in verse 10, uh, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus because uh, he should have understood what water and spirit meant. He should have understood what Jesus was talking about about being born again. This should have come naturally to him. Um, Jesus, you know, he said, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand what these things are. You know, come on, Nicodemus, you're, you're a Pharisee. You're a teacher of Israel. You know, the scriptures, you should know what I'm talking about. Well, that wouldn't make any sense unless Jesus was referring to the old Testament, right? Um, now Dr. Jordan Cooper, who's a Lutheran, uh, would take the view that John three is talking about water baptism because of John the Baptist. Uh, but Jesus goes farther than that before John the Baptist to the old Testament, um, and so this combination of water and spirit is really being referred to um, in relation to the spirit being poured out. It's the spirit's renewal and regeneration symbolized with water um, from, you know, comparing it to the spirit. And then baptism is symbolizing that baptism or cleansing of the Holy Spirit that we receive. And I think that's the, the consistent way to look at these passages. But that's why Collins, I think, talks about the Spirit in this way. It's tied to baptism, but baptism isn't actually cleansing us. It's uh, referring to the spiritual reality that has uh, taken place by the Holy Spirit. Anything to add, Sean? No, I think that was good. You even uh, swiped what I was going to say about uh, John 3.10, referring to the, <laughs> uh, the Old Testament. For... Whatever interpretation you take of this passage, you have to ground it somewhere in the Old Testament. And yes. it seems to me to be the most consistent to ground it in the passages uh, Dan just read through. And that would make us uh, come to the conclusion that it's a it's a spiritual baptism, not necessarily a literal water baptism right. going on there. All right. And with that, I will go on to question 77. Is then the outward baptism in water the washing away of sins? Answer, it is not. The blood of Christ alone cleanses us from all sin. So th this is an important discussion here. This is, uh, we've had a, a similar discussion in regards to this um, about baptism, uh, reviewing a, a video by Dr. Jordan Cooper. Um, but so this would be a, a, a um, point of contention between us and the Lutherans. Um, does water wash itself, uh, wa itself wash away sins? So a couple of texts to discuss. Uh, 1 Peter 3.21, 
There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here it's telling us baptism doesn't save you merely because it's the washing of water. That's not what's what's saving you, but it's the answer of a good conscience. It's this spiritual reality. It's this calling upon God. Um, and I will note that there is uh, um, some sort of uh, there is some contention over how this verse should be translated. Other uh, translations, such as the ESV, will render it uh, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So some translations will say it's the answer of a good conscience, and some will say it's an appeal to a good conscience, how uh, appeal for a good conscience. However, regardless of whichever translation you would accept at the end, I don't think it uh, changes the point that I'm trying to make here, that this is a reflection of a reality, whether you're, it's the answer of a clean conscience, something that's already happened and you're reaching out, or it's um, the... Uh, you're, you're calling upon God for a clean conscience. Both are something you're doing. It's that's the true reality, not necessarily the baptism itself that um, is washing away your sins. Now, at this point, I imagine um, some in our audience might be uh, trying to go to Acts uh, 22.16, which at least on the surface does seem to suggest that it's the water that does wash away your sins. So Acts 22.16, and now why are you waiting Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So here it seems like there's a connection with being water baptized. That is the context. We're talking about water baptism here and washing away your sins. But I'll note again, we have this connection to um, calling on the name of the Lord here. So A, for anyone who would uh, want to read pedo-baptism into it here, um, unless you're expecting that the infants are calling upon the name of the Lord, that wouldn't make sense of this context. But if we're, if we're looking at baptism and calling upon the name of the Lord, what is the more important element here? And I would say it has to be calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, Romans 10, starting at verse uh, 11, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's that's the key element right there. As Paul will go on, he'll, he'll talk about, well, how are they going to call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him who they have not heard? And how shall they uh, hear without a preacher? He's going through and, and showing that um, there's there's no other way for this message of salvation to go out. It's very important that they be able to call upon the name of the Lord and they, they need all these things to transpire before they can do that. Um, and that's, that's the important aspect there that you're, you're calling upon the name of the Lord. So someone can call upon the name of the Lord and be, and be saved that way. Or as in this case, if they're calling upon the name of the Lord uh, in their baptism, essentially, then yes, I, I don't have a problem saying their sins are washed away sort of in that act, if you want to speak about it like that. But it's not necessarily tied to baptism. And if it is uh, tied to baptism, it's only as an act of faith and nothing else. It's not the water that washes away sins. It's um, 
It's the the fact that you're calling upon the name of the Lord. Yeah, it's very interesting that in that in Acts twenty two sixteen that uh, was it Paul speaking. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That Paul didn't divorce the act of baptism from uh, them calling on the name of Christ. It's like mm-hmm. be baptized and be cleansed, calling on the name of Jesus. So they are reaching out in faith and being cleansed mm-hmm. from their sins. Um, so yeah, if they want to, if that passage is used in support of some baptismal regeneration or actual cleansing of sin through the act of baptism, um, you have a problem uh, because these people are believing in faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going back to First Peter three twenty one, um, definitely not an easy passage um, on its face. You know, it it looks like it says baptism saves us. Um, and we would obviously reject that. I think there's a couple reasons. One, um, I think Sean uh, talked about it very well, that uh, the baptism in, in this sense, in terms of it saves us, is the appeal or the answer of a good conscience for God. That's the only thing that does. And Peter is very clear, and he's expressly saying, right after he says baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, it's not the washing that saves you, the physical pouring of water or getting or immersion that does anything spiritually to you. You're appealing or answering to a good conscience before God in the act of, uh, of baptism. And in that sense, it saves us. And I, I personally, I think that when it's talking about saving us, it's in a sanctifying sense after you're saved. Um, you're appealing to, a, to God for a pure conscience. You're basically saying, that you're going to live a certain way. You're you're saying, I'm going to obey. I'm going to uh, walk in a way. And in that sense, from a sanctifying aspect, uh, it saves you. Um, and then there's also the the anti-type that is given. Um, in that passage in, in 1 Peter 3, the example of Noah being saved by water or through water um, in the ark is discussed as it relates to uh, being a comparison with baptism, and that is used that has been used by like Dr. Jordan Cooper in support that this is you know baptism is saving you. Look, look at Noah; he's being saved through the floods of uh, water in the ark and going uh, through safe passage. Uh, the problem with that is is that happens after uh, Noah believes by faith. Uh, if you look at uh, Hebrews eleven verse six or verse seven, I'm sorry. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So actually, if you wanted to use this as some sort of metaphor, this would be uh, much more in line with our view because he would have gone through the waters of baptism after he believed and was justified. Um, so to try and use that to say that this is somehow salvific and it 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 uh, it either precedes faith or comes with it in a salvific sense, um, as a Lutheran would put it, uh, really is not helpful at all. Um, as the scriptures make it very clear that he was saved already. He was justified in the eyes of God. He was declared righteous, just like Abraham was beef long before he built the ark and the flood came. Um, so I just wanted to note that, uh, in passing, do you mind um, if I expand on that real quick? Yeah, yeah, go right ahead. Yeah. Because oftentimes I will hear the argument that, oh, this is a, a prototype of baptism and you have Noah and his household 
on the ark, right? It's Noah, his three sons, um, and their uh, their wives on the ark. Therefore, this is this is giving, and because that's the the prototype, and baptism is the antitype. We should be baptizing. We're back to baptizing households that uh, include infants. And I'd like to point out that just like Noah, these these were old these were old sons so old sons old enough to be married, right? And yet they're on the ark. Uh, so they are at least in some way um, demonstrating faith. Now we can get into whether or not all the sons were actually saved or not. It, it might have just been an outward faith, but they're at least demonstrating some sort of outward uh, professed faith because the rest of humanity didn't get on the ark. They didn't have to get on the ark, but they did. So um, going back to what Dan said, this is a this is more of a reflection of our example that okay, um, there's at least some sort of demonstration of, uh, of faith going on here. Not that just because that's the way uh, it is in uh, the example that it has to be that way in the new covenant. But if we were to look at it in that way, it would be more of a match. Um, when you get into typology, uh, it's not necessarily that every single aspect of the uh, prototype has to match the antitype. But in this case, it would seem to support our position a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, especially since Hebrews brings out expressly that he believed and was an heir of righteousness before the mm -hmm. ark was built. And mm -hmm. that and actually the building of the ark flowed from the faith that he had in God, right? And became an heir of righteousness. And I think Noah even preached to those around him. So it was almost like he was an evangelist, right? Preaching mm -hmm. the good news. Look, and I think that if people had believed, they would have come on the ark with him. It, this was I clearly you know, as, as demonstrated here, it is representative of the reality that we see for Christians. It is a, a way of salvation. Um, but it, it's just, I find it kind of ironic that, or I find it very ironic that the order uh, on the Lutheran side is put that this is talking about your eternal salvation while ignoring the fact that Noah was saved and justified and just fine long before this actually happened. Um, but yeah, your point is, is true that just because every, you know, we see aspects in, in a type does not mean they're going to be reflected exactly in the anti-type. Um, but at the very least, it doesn't help their position in any way, shape or form. Um, if you're going to use this as an example of salvation, um, then you need to make sure that all of your ducks are in a row and other aspects of scripture, which scripture clearly says he was saved prior to that. Um, so it, it doesn't work. And I think that helps Peter's um, argument as well, because this would refer to someone who is believing after who is already believing in this appeal to pure conscience before God is someone who is already in a state of believing. And this would be um, really a sanctifying aspect rather than a salvific aspect um, in an absolute sense. Yeah, not not an easy passage, but uh, one that is definitely used by our Lutheran friends um, and relied upon heavily for their position on baptism. Um, no doubt about that. All right, so our final question, question 78. Now, this is a, definitely a long chapter, but we are at the end. Question 78, why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of the new birth and forgiveness of sins? Answer, God speaks so not without great cause to this, not only to teach us that the filth of our body is purged by water, so our sins are also also are purged by the blood and spirit of Christ, 
but much more to assure us by this divine token and pledge that we are as surely washed from our sins with the outward washing as we are washed by the outward, excuse me, invisible water. So it, again, it seems Collins, it, Collins is anticipating these questions, right? It's like, okay, so you're saying that baptism doesn't do anything salvifically. It doesn't wash us. So what in the world does it do? You know, when it, when it talks about, um, it, it washes us, washing of the new birth and the forgiveness of sin. So why does it use language like that? And I think what he's saying here is that they're so closely identified with each other in terms of uh, baptism represents that spiritual reality that they're almost spoken of as the same thing or they seem to at times be spoken of in a way that uh, might seem or be apparent to be the same thing. Um, but as we've demonstrated, they can't be covenantally um, you know that might create issues but as we talked about especially in first peter 321 and the typology and the anti-type there um, we see that is not the case but they're spoke they're so closely identified together i think that they um, are spoken of in that way and they they really have this surety that these things are true and that they will happen and and like colin says this uh, baptism brings this security to the believer. It's a symbolism of a spiritual reality that cannot change, and that is grounded in the eternal promise and decree of God and and solidified in the blood of Christ through his death and applied to us, right? And that really is, uh, in a nutshell, the gospel message. Um, and so that baptism really symbolizes the gospel. It symbolizes what Jesus did. It symbolizes... Um, the reality that's done in our hearts, the final application of that work of Christ, um, and it it should bring great assurance to our hearts. Any closing remarks, Sean? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, give out an invitation to anyone who might be listening. Um, if you are trusting in your baptism to be mm. right with God um, mm. and have not actually repented and believed, have not grasped upon Christ calling upon his name, but think you're right because you were baptized. I, I, I just want to let you know that uh, the scripture tells us very plainly that the only way to be right with God is to believe on mm -hmm. his son. That is how we um, partake of his atonement, his atoning work. And uh, we are, we are credited as a, as righteousness. Um, uh, Romans three Verse 30, seeing it is one God, uh, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Um, in the Old Testament, there were many that were circumcised but had not faith, and they died and they perished. Um, but uh, Paul is letting us know that you need to have faith in order to be saved. So I would, I would um, call upon anyone who is trusting in their baptism apart from from faith from without faith just trusting that they're baptized and they're right with god to seriously consider their sin um recognize that their sin has caused a separation from god and that baptism doesn't do anything to make them right with god they need to in faith uh call upon the name of the lord in faith trust in christ and in him are their sins forgiven amen amen yes we'd Call on you if, if you're trusting in yourself, repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and, and your only hope. And uh, at the end of the day, we hope that's 
ultimately what is taken away from this, if you are listening and are trusting in your own works, your baptism, or any other religious activity, um, instead of trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. So we call on you to do that today if you have not. Well, thank you for joining us, and we thank you uh, for listening today. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Uh, we're going to try and uh, discuss the topic of open theism. So uh, we're going to dive into some of that, discuss that error. Um, so Lord willing, we'll be back next week on Saturday. Uh, but until then, have a great weekend and a great Lord's Day. God bless.